Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will see that the Israelites were a rebellious and not a righteous people, just like us. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. We have been on a journey, and that journey from bondage to freedom has uh, taken us to a certain location today, but it's ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ. And that is our theme for our year, and it has been. And we come this morning to the 28th lesson in our journey with the Israelites. And the lesson today from Deuteronomy chapter 9 is entitled A Spiritual Reality Check. So uh, maybe some some humble pie spiritually that we get to eat today, but good because of what God's word declares to be true. So open your Bibles or fire up your smartphones or tablets to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And we're grateful for men who are here in person, grateful for any who are joining us online later as we get into God's word. And as we think about this lesson from Deuteronomy 28, a few weeks ago, I put a picture and a quotation up of Winston Churchill And a quote that he has become famous for, I don't think he invented the quote, I think he regurgitated the quote, but because he's Winston Churchill, it sounds really fancy and important, because it is. And his quote was, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that is really a lot of what the book of Deuteronomy is about. It is a retelling of the history of the Israelites up until this point almost 40 years after they've left Egypt, so that the new generation will be reminded of where they've come from, where the previous generation came from, and their failings, so that the new generation will be prepared and ready to follow Yahweh, God, faithfully in the promised land. Guys who are new, we love the map. And this this has been a staple map here at the Men's Breakfast, so much so that I'm sure every man here could close their eyes and say, I know exactly where this is on the map. Uh, But you see Egypt on the left, you see Canaan, the promised land in the upper right. And that red circle indicates about where the Israelites are when they're receiving all these words from Moses for the whole book of Deuteronomy. And that is in the plains of Moab, which are to the east of the Jordan River in the modern day Middle East. So they have been receiving from Moses these words again, And that is intended to be for their instruction so that they learn from history. Otherwise, they will be doomed to repeat it. So as a reminder too, the purpose of Deuteronomy, really the the whole theme is about the covenant. It's almost like a covenant renewal, a renewing of wedding vows, so to speak, between God and his people. And the purpose is to remind God's covenant people of his covenant promises and their covenant commitments before entering the promised land. Or as Dale has in in so many ways put it, it is the final pep talk to prepare God's people to take possession of the promised land. So I I really appreciate the alliteration there. And two weeks ago, Wes White, one of my good friends and uh, pastor of Mission Point Church, he was able to share from Deuteronomy 8 with the themes of entering and thriving and the importance of remembering the Lord. But we turn our attention now to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And I think what I will do is I will will read the text and make some observations along the way. Uh, And really our first set of observations that we'll get to is three reasons why 
the Israelites did not deserve the promised land. This wonderful gift of grace that they did not deserve. And in case they needed reminders of why they did not deserve it, Moses and the Lord is going to give them these reminders. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read through here. Um, the text begins, Hear, O Israel. Those words may be familiar as you look at the famous Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. The same words in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael. Again, Moses is calling the people's attention to listen up to what is about to be said. You are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess, dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Just a note on that word today, that doesn't mean that in about an hour they're going to go ahead and cross the Jordan. Today is talking about the imminent future, that today is talking about the season that they're in. It's very, very soon that they are going to cross over this Jordan River and dispossess nations greater and mightier than they. That word dispossess, Dale touched upon this a few weeks back, is the same word that will be uh, possess or translated driving out. So it's a Hebrew word that talks about both um, pushing out and taking hold. And it is repeated eight times throughout this whole chapter. But who are they to dispossess? This uh, nation's greater and mightier than they. Verse two continues, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Now, when the 12 spies went into the land in Numbers chapter 13, they saw these people of giant, great stature. We don't know exactly how tall they were, but they were um, believed to be these legendary people of great stature, mighty warriors, certainly um, along the lines of almost like a Goliath-type person or group of people whom the Israelites would look at and say, who can defeat these enemies? Certainly we can't. And that was really the whole point, is that the victory that they would gain was not coming on their own strength. It was coming only through the strength and victory found through Yahweh God himself as he gave them victory. So this was another example of why they had to recognize their own weakness in light of God's ultimate strength. But God promises that they will be defeated. Verse three, know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire and is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Uh, this word destroy is also repeated eight times in this chapter and it could be translated annihilate or exterminate. God was going to wipe out the enemies of the Israelites and he was going to subdue them before them. So this was going to clearly be a miraculous work of God of defeating the enemies that were humanly impossible for the Israelites to defeat. Um, continuing on, <clears throat> you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now, uh, here's where the spiritual reality check comes in. This is where the Israelites really need to eat a huge dose of uh, reality and humble pie. And as we read through this, I want us to recognize ourselves in the Israelites, okay? Because like the Israelites, we can start to think that somehow we are deserving 
of the promises and the blessings and the gracious gifts that God gives, especially after we receive them. We can say in our own hearts and minds, well, sure, I I think I deserve that after all. Well, let's read the words that God warns and tells the Israelites in these next few verses that remind them of why they did not deserve what was about to happen to them and the gift that they were about to receive. Verse four, do not say in your heart after the Lord has thrust them out before you, that is your enemies, do not say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It is not. God says really the first reason why the Israelites did not deserve the land is, whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving out before you. Though it's not because you deserve this, it's because the people that are in the land are so wicked and so blasphemous and they, you know, they, they sacrifice their children, they have cult prostitutes, they are against everything God says is, is holy and good in my eyes. That is why I'm clearing these people out so that you can possess the land. It's not because of your own righteousness. That's verse four. We read on in verse five. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the second reason why the Israelites did not deserve this promised land is because God was going to remain faithful to his word. God had already promised, as we go back even as far as Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham, that Abraham would receive this incredible gift of real estate in one of the most prized parts of the globe, right there in the Middle East, right on the Mediterranean Sea, in a swath that would go from the Euphrates River all the way to Egypt. This was a promise that God had made to Abraham that passed on to Isaac, that passed on to Jacob, that you and your descendants would have this land. So it's not because you're a righteous people, Israelites, but because the people are wicked and God would fulfill his promise. That's verse five. You tracking with me? They didn't deserve this. Um, And finally, verse six. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. There it is again. For you are a stubborn people. (laughs) So here's really kind of the capstone reason for why they did not deserve this gracious gift of the promised land because they are a stubborn people. Now this word stubborn is an interesting one. It is actually two words in the Hebrew language. The first one means uh, stiff or hard. And the second word or the second term means neck or head. So we, and sometimes this is translated as stiff-necked. Maybe you've seen that in some of your, of your Bible study. It also could actually be translated hard-headed. Now, I know that can be said of, of me and, and all of us at some point. Uh, it's not a very flattering term spiritually. So um, maybe we should not laugh when someone says we're hard-headed. Ha ha. Well, maybe not. That, that's not a good word, at least in the Bible, when God describes his people as being stubborn, also known as stiff-necked or hard-headed. That's literally what the Hebrew language means. And in case they needed reminders that they were a stubborn people and not worthy of receiving this gift that God was still amazingly by his grace going to give to them, 
Moses says, let's take a little look back. Again, those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, right? So we read on. Uh, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath, verse 7 reads, in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until uh, you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. The whole time they have been a rebellious people. And we'll unpack that in a little more in just a few moments. Uh, But he starts with, even in verse 8, at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. That word destroy is the word that he's already used to promise to destroy the the peoples in the, uh, the Canaanites and the other pagan peoples. God was ready to annihilate or exterminate even the Israelites because of their stubbornness and their rebellion. And we'll read on that this, he'll refer to the golden calf incident, which when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai receiving God's law, which was to be given to the people that they would obey and fulfill their covenant responsibilities, it's almost like uh, it was the wedding night and they were already unfaithful to their, their spouse because the Israelites were down at the bottom of the mountain and they were taking part in all sort of um, inappropriate activities, we would say, if one was to remain faithful to God and to others. We read on in verse nine. Moses uh, says, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, and this word tablets is repeated at least six times here, and this to refer to that almost, permanent um, fortified law that God would give his people to say, to be my people uh, by grace, yes, but to act like my people by obedience, this is what you are to do. So it's important to know that God had chosen them by grace. They were already his covenant people, but to act in a way that was consistent with his character and to be faithful as his covenant people The law was given to show them how they were to stand apart from the other nations around them. Again, that was the purpose of the law, not to save them, but to demonstrate how they, as an already saved people, were to live. We always want to make that important distinction. But Moses had the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you. I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. A significant period of time of preparation in the Bible, 40 days, 40 nights. That word 40 has that connotation. Now Moses continues, I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words of the Lord, uh, all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Uh, This does not mean that God has an actual finger that etched uh, physically in the stone, uh, but it means that these were words that came from God himself. Sometimes we get that portrayal in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, and it could have looked like that where the stone all of a sudden has this miraculous etching and carving. Maybe that's how God decided to do it. I just don't want you to think that God has like an actual finger up there in heaven floating around. It's called anthropomorphism. It's a, it's, a biblical, um, it's a biblical convention. So we continue on in verse 11. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave to me uh, the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought out from Egypt. Notice that distinction. It, when the people are behaving badly in this way, uh, God 
almost doesn't take credit for being the one that brings them out. He, he puts it on Moses and he says, those disobedient people that you, Moses, brought out of Egypt, that's going to become instructive at the end of our passage. Just, just remember that. Uh, they have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. It's almost as if God can't even say a golden calf or a metal calf, but there it is. And a few weeks ago, my family and I had the privilege of, of going to New York City and it's a wonderful, wonderful experience for us. And in the New York Public Library, if you go up to the top floor, is uh, this, uh, this relief or this, this painting. Uh, I don't know why they put it in there, but it's an image of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with one tablet in hand and the other tablet is on the ground. It has been broken. And that's what Moses would go on just summarizing these next few verses as he would go down and he would see the people taking part in all this revelry, um, probably some sexual indecency going on, and this golden calf, which some believe was meant to be to represent a false god. Others believe, which I, I tend to believe this as well, that it was their attempt to represent the true God, but in, a, in metal form, in, in idolatrous form, which God had already said right from the beginning, don't do that. And so Moses has thrown down the tablets of stone to break them to demonstrate that the Israelites have already broken their end of the covenant agreement by creating an idol just about a month and a half after Moses has gone up to meet with God himself. And so what Moses does is he, he ends up um, ordering that the calf be burned down and that they be ground to dust and that dust would be poured in the water and the people would drink the bitter water of the golden dust in it as a reminder of their sin of idolatry. And so uh, we see really right from, from the start that they are a stubborn people. Do you, do you see that point? God just wants to make this so clear in his people's minds so that they would uh, recognize that they do not deserve this great gift that they are about to receive. We pick up the action again in verse 22, because what we, what we find here is Israel's remarkable track record of rebellion, because if Mount Sinai and the golden calf were not enough, God, through Moses, continues to remind them of this track record that they have as a stubborn people. We find verse 22, at Taborah also. Uh, Taborah was an event that took place in Numbers chapter 11, and it refers to a burning. That's what the word Taborah means, burning. This was the Israelites complaining about their misfortunes in the wilderness, and God, out of his anger, his righteous anger, judged many of them and burned them with fire. Continue on to Massa. Massa, which means testing. This was an event that took place in Exodus chapter 17, where the people were complaining that they had no water. By the way, just two chapters after uh, God had miraculously, or three chapters after God had miraculously delivered them through the water of the Red Sea, Already a few days later, they are complaining, we don't have any water in the wilderness, and they were testing God. Eventually, God would bring forth miraculously water from the rock to show them that he would answer their test, but still they were a stubborn people to doubt him. Next, Kibroth Hata'ava, which means graves of craving. This took place in 
uh, Numbers chapter 11, where the people were complaining about how God had provided through the manna, that substance that came down, that flaky substance, which was meeting their needs in the wilderness where there was no other food. And eventually the law of decreasing marginal utility said that we are sick and tired of this stuff after having so much of it, God. And so God said, "These, I will give you meat and I will give you so much meat, it's gonna come out your nose. And he actually sent a plague as well and then he died. And that's why that place, Kibrath Hata'ava, means graves of craving. You craved this and now some of you have died all as an expression of your failure to trust in the Lord. And then finally, we continue on. Kibraf hata'ava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And then verse 23, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have, been a rebel- you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Kadesh Barnea is the location where the Israelites were when they sent the 12 spies into the land in Numbers chapter 13, and they brought back the report. And it was, for 10 of them, a very bad report. These Anak, these giants, these people, the land is great, but oh, by the way, these giants are there and we'll never take it. But Joshua and Caleb were constantly saying, no, it is ours to take. God has promised it to us as a gift. We need to trust him. And so even in that moment, the people of Israel remained stubborn and rebellious against the Lord from the day that he knew them. So a commentator named Peter Craigie emphasizes the point this way. If the people were ever foolish enough to claim that the gift of the land was a result of their righteousness, then they would be suffering from a severe case of religious amnesia. And I think that that is true. Uh, They were rebels. And God even expressed plans to wipe them out as a result of that and create a new nation through Moses. And then here is a miraculous work that Moses does as we look at these last few verses. And um, these verses actually summarize the intercession that Moses made on Mount Sinai for those 40 days and 40 nights for the people that God would actually spare them. And we will see that he has three points in his intercession and reasons why God should spare his covenant people. Verse 25 Moses says, so I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, our God, or I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, this is a, um, O uh, Adonai, uh, Adonai Yahweh. This is a term that's only used in earnest prayer in the book of Deuteronomy as Moses prays to God himself. Uh, do not destroy your people and your heritage. Um, he refers to them as a heritage. This idea of a, of a priceless inheritance that is intended to be handed down from one generation to generation. The Israelites are God's priceless and prized possession. That's what's communicated when Moses uh, says to God, they are your heritage, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So his first point of intercession is these people are your special and prized possession. Verse 27, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. So Moses' second point of intercession is, remember your covenant faithfulness to their forefathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, appealing that God would fulfill his promises that he had made to those men and to their descendants. Verse 28, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he has promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So the third reason for Moses' intercession here is that uh, God's reputation among the evil nations, especially the, the nation of Egypt from where they had come, was at stake. And the nations, especially Egypt, would say, well, look, all that God did to bring them out in these great miraculous works and the Red Sea and all of his provision was simply so that he would bring them out here to kill them. Well, what kind of God is he? Why would we ever want to engage in relationship with that kind of a God? And so Moses appealed to that, that God's reputation amongst the nations, his missio dei, his redemptive purposes amongst the world, nations of the world would be at stake. So Moses intercedes for this rebellious, wicked, and sinful people. And he concludes in verse 29, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So here we get to a, a point where we can ask ourselves, as we look at this, as we have a, a great litany and track record of the rebelliousness of Israel, what can we pull from this text? And there are two applications that I believe we can pull today, which are very helpful for us. They're helpful for me as I think about my own walk in following Jesus Christ, and again, it's a spiritual reality check for me, maybe a spiritual reality check for you as well. And the first application is that God's people are stubborn. They're stubborn. We're stubborn. We're like the Israelites, and we should see ourselves no differently. Um, we're stubborn sinners, and that stubbornness can make us proud that pride can lead us like the Israelites to think, oh, I deserve this blessing from the Lord. I, I'm pretty good, and isn't God smiling on me? And sure, this is something that I deserve. We believe that we somehow deserve God's blessings and His grace. Well, some, um, some scholars, uh, Car uh, Carl Kyle and Franz Delich, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, they sound German. Uh, but they write these words in, in one of their, their writings on this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Besides the more vulgar pride, which entirely forgets God, there is one of a more refined character, which very easily spreads, namely the pride which acknowledges the blessings of God, but instead of receiving them gratefully as unmerited gifts of the grace of, of the Lord, sees them in them nothing but proofs of its own righteousness and virtue. Moses, therefore, warned the Israelites more particularly of this dangerous enemy of the soul. And I think that we can struggle with that same dangerous enemy of the soul, guys. We can forget that we are just as stubborn, just as sinful, just as fallen as some of the more obvious examples that we read in Scripture, particularly the Israelites. I mean, as a small example, what is your first inclination when you see the sign that says, wet paint, do not touch? You're laughing because you know, and, and I have done it. It's to, to touch it, right? 
the, the law has clearly said, you know, do not touch. I, I'm convicted, guys, as I did it this morning. There's some road close signs right over here going through the, uh, the apartment complex. And I, I said, oh, I know it's not really closed because I can get through. And I did. But, you know, what was my stubborn inclination was to defy the law that has been posted. And sure, some of that is ha-ha when it comes to signs, but when it comes spiritually to what the Lord has said, what he desires from us and what he has for us, we can be stubborn in thinking we deserve his gracious gifts and forget just how sinful and lost and dead we were before Christ and fail to see just how stubborn and sinful we still remain even in our walk with Christ. Sometimes that leads us to think that we are better than others that we might see, whether it's within the body of Christ or in the world. Oh, I would never do what they did. I'm, I'm so much more mature than him or than her. That's where that nasty form of pride begins to step in. And we have to go back to words like we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, which remind us of just how much we need the grace of God and just how undeserving we are of that grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that is our identity and spiritual state before we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. When you're dead, you can't bring yourself back to life. It's only a work of grace and a miracle that that happens. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The bad news is we were dead. The good news is through Christ and through his own resurrection, we have been spiritually raised to new life with the promise of our physical resurrection in the future. Paul continues to hammer this in several of his letters. For me, most notably, again, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, not justified by our own righteousness, not justified by our own obedience, not justified by our own, we are a good person, but justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Guys, remember in humility where we've come from. And allow that to remind us in gratitude to receive the gracious gifts of God. Certainly the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ by faith. And if you have not experienced that salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead three days later to give us the promise of new life, uh, you can make that decision even now and saying, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe Jesus is that Savior who has died for me and been raised for me. But even the other many gifts and blessings that God gives to us, let us not assume this is all because of my hard work and goodness. 
But let us in humility and gratitude receive what God has given and recognize that he is indeed the giver of all good gifts, good gifts that we do not deserve. The Israelites did not deserve the promised land, but God gave it to them by his grace. As helpless sinners, we did not deserve the salvation that we have, but God gave it to us by his grace. And amazingly, while Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection was a once-for-all event in his life, the ministry of Jesus actually continues. That gracious work of Christ continues in our lives today. And that's where we turn to our second point of application. Not only are God's people stubborn, but God's people need a mediator. You see how Moses mediated and interceded for the people of Israel. They needed him to be that point of contact between God and his holiness and them and their disobedience and their rebelliousness. In the same way, we need the more perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, to stand between God and his holiness and us in our constant disobedience to him. And that's why Christ's ministry continues, which is fascinating as we think about it. Uh, the role of Jesus as mediator is what Paul writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We find that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was able to be that mediator between God and man. Yes, through his sacrifice, but also a continuing role of mediator and intercessor, which continues even to this very day. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 and 26, this is fascinating to me that we read about this ministry of Jesus, which is still going on. It's not as if Jesus was crucified and raised and ascended to heaven and said, okay, I'm just going to kind of sit here at the right hand and wait. Passively, Jesus is actively interceding. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a constant, perpetual role and responsibility that Jesus has taken on, always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate high priest and the ultimate mediator. Just as the high priest would offer sacrifices in the temple, Jesus is now the ultimate high priest who has offered the ultimate sacrifice for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice on the cross. And it's fascinating to know that the crucifixion work is done. It is finished, but the intercession work of Jesus continues even to this day. And I am glad because I can speak for myself and probably every person in here and every person online. I have constant need for that intercessory work of Jesus on my behalf. I am like those Israelites who transgressed at Sinai, who transgressed at Kadesh Barnea, who transgressed at um, Taberah, who transgressed at all these places. Every day of my life, I'm transgressing in need of the forgiveness of my Savior. And that's the good news, is that we have it because Jesus is constantly interceding. He always lives to make intercession for us. That's essential. I don't often think about that incredible reality of Jesus' ongoing intercessory ministry 
for me and for you as our great high priest. Well, as we come to the conclusion today, it's a reminder to remember this spiritual reality check. And I, I think about this um, for even just a few weeks ago. I mentioned my family and I had the privilege of going to New York City. And one of the, the sites that we saw and the, the events that we had on our schedule was to visit the, um, the 9-11 Museum and Memorial, which are right next to each other on the former site of the original Twin Towers in New York City. Has anyone, I'm sure a lot of us have been to the memorial, has anyone actually gone into the museum itself? And maybe a few people. I would highly recommend it, and not because it's a happy thing. When we brought our kids down there, it wasn't like, hey kids, this is a joyous thing that we remember. But we all need the, the reminders of those times of difficulty um, because they're important to help us to look back. And I, even as I walk around that wall and the picture that I have here is the name of a high school classmate of mine named Brad Fetchett, who was killed in that, that horrific moment on September the 11th. But we get reminders of what has happened so that we can move forward in the future in a way that is, is more helpful and, and good. And spiritually speaking, I think that is the truth. Now, oftentimes as we look at license plates and we think about 9-11 and September 11th, the tagline that's often said or written is what? We will remember. We will remember. And I think that's one of the reasons why the museum and memorial exist is to help us as a people remember. But spiritually speaking, we have a much more important truth to remember. To remember that we are stiff-necked and we came from a place where we did not deserve the salvation that God has given us. Uh, we have to remember that we were dead in our sins and that God through his grace made us alive through faith in Jesus Christ, not because we deserved it, but because God freely gave it to us through his son who continues to intercede for us as our great high priest. We are stubborn. And we must not forget how much we have been forgiven. In our stiff-neckedness, we must not forget how much we need that mediator, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, God's people are stubborn. God's people need a mediator. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ as this journey from bondage to freedom points us to him. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again next week for the next installment of our journey with the Israelites through the wilderness. Until then, God bless and have a great week.